Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chazeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. We have a sports-filled episode for you today, a double header, if you will. <laughs> we, we first talk about an evaluation of the performance of Major League Baseball umpires and the potential benefit of incorporating more AI technology. And then we talk about how Nate Silver at 538.com evaluates the strength of soccer teams internationally using statistical modeling and simulations. Let's get started. I have to admit that I used to think that baseball was very boring and would not have really even considered watching games. But then I started watching games with my now husband, and he explained all the intricate, beautiful, and interesting details of the game. And my appreciation for it has greatly increased. And I'd actually say I'm, I'm a baseball fan now. And um, also, though, as I've watched more and more games over the past couple years, I've quickly noticed that there, were there tends to be uh, a number of bad calls made by umpires during the game. Um, just the other night, for example, my husband and I were watching a game and it actually ended on an incorrect call. Many of the listeners are at least somewhat familiar with the game of baseball, and we're guessing. But just to provide some basics for those that aren't, a baseball game has nine innings where each team has a turn to bat and a turn to field. There are three outs for each half inning. The goal for the team at bat is to score runs, and the goal for the team in the field is to prevent runs. Yes, and for today's discussion, another important note is about what happens at each at bat. So there's a home plate umpire that stands behind the catcher who receives the balls pitched from the pitcher. The other team has a batter up who is trying to hit the pitches. So for pitches that are not hit or swung at by the batter, the home plate umpire has to decide if the pitch was a strike or a ball. Three strikes and the batter is out, four balls and the batter is walked to first base. That sounds like a nice freebie for the batter. So in a nutshell, strikes penalize the batter for not swinging at a decent pitch. Balls penalize the pitcher for not throwing a decent pitch. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what's happening. There, there's also, though, this, what I find to be an interesting psychological element to it, where pitchers could also try to do things like, you know, throw balls so that um, they think the batter would swing at, or you know, some variation of, like maybe they know a particular player likes inside pitches, and so they throw it more inside than the... Tricky. Yeah, yeah. so anyway, there's lots, there's lots that go on that make it what I, you know, interesting to me at least. And, um, and so, um, so in addition though to balls and strikes, there are other sorts of calls that can happen at home plate, but we're just gonna focus on the ball versus strike call today. Um, so if you've spent any time watching baseball, you could probably appreciate the difficulty in calling balls and strikes by the home plate umpire. So if the ball is thrown within the so-called strike zone, it's considered a strike. If it is thrown outside the strike zone, it's considered a ball. And there's probably a formal definition for the strike zone. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, the strike zone is um, defined as the area over the home plate, and it's ranging from the midpoint between the top of the player's shoulders, um, the, the batter's shoulders, I should say, to the top of their pants, and then it drops down to the, ho um, the hollow beneath the player's kneecap. So there's actually a nice diagram of it on the official baseball rules. Wow, that's complicated. So it sounds like the umpire has to really adjust the strike zone for every batter. 
Indeed. And the umpire also has to make many striker ball calls during a game and, and instantly. And it just, it appears to be a very challenging job, not only physically, but also mentally having to pay close attention to each pitch. And so, you know, it turns out that sometimes a home plate umpire gets the call wrong. Um, He may call a ball a strike or a strike a ball. And it is, as you might imagine, frustrating for the player and the pitcher when the incorrect call goes against them. But also as a fan, we have um, the benefit of seeing the strike zone outlined on TV, at, at least for some networks. And so we can tell when a bad call is made. So a recent article posted on BU Today, that's BU for Boston University, um, discussed an analysis of the home plate umpire's performance and them. The analysis and article, um, it was led by um, Mark T. Williams, who is on the faculty in the Questrom School of Business at BU. And just to clarify, this study was only investigating the ball strike calls and not the other calls that the umpires make throughout the game. Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, it, it only is focusing on the balls versus strike calls. And they end up using 11 seasons of MLB data from 2008 through the 2018 season, which amounts to almost 4 million pitches considered. They use data posted on MLB.com, Baseball, Savant, and RetroSheet. All have different statistics information about players, plays, um, things like game logs, trends, called pitches, and strike zones, and so forth. I've often heard that baseball is one of the sports that has the best data. So how do they get all that information? Yeah, it turns out that all the major league ballparks have this pitch tracking system. And so that tracks the ball location a bunch of times, um, maybe even up to 50 times per pitch. And the stated accuracy of the locations is thought to be within one inch. So from the noted data sources, um, they calculate the So for this paper, I should say, the, the researchers, they calculated what they're calling the bad call ratio or BCR for each umpire, um, which is then the number of incorrect calls over the number of total pitches um, that that umpire had called. And so a high BCR means they make a lot of errors. So how do they determine if a call is erroneous? Ah, yes. So that is an excellent question. So in theory, they are just checking if the ball was or was not in the strike zone using the available data and then comparing that to the umpire call. However, the tracking system has error, the specified strike zone likely has some uncertainty, and the article does not go into details about how they accounted for this, um, if they even accounted for this. And actually, there are a number of questions that remain after reading the article, uh, more details about the analysis that I would have been interested in learning. Um, However, you know, it's it's not a research article per se, it's not been peer-reviewed, so we should keep this in mind as we discuss some of the conclusions drawn. So caveats aside, how dire is the situation of bad calls? Yeah, uh, so, so the details provided in the article suggest, um, sorry, the details that the article suggests, I should say, um, they, they were mostly just summarizing the results of the bad call ratios. So, so they're really looking at averages in different ways, summarizing them in different ways. They're, um, so this is more of a side note also, um, they're not it does not appear that they're using any advanced statistical or AI methods, um, or if they are, these details are somewhere in the background. Um, but so perhaps later they'll be submitting a more detailed article to a journal. But um, but just considering um, the 2018 season, they found that there were 34,294 incorrect ball and strike calls made, and this amounts to about 14 errors per game on average, which is almost 1.6 per inning. 
So wow. just to put this, yeah, I know, right? Just to put this in perspective, um, each team plays 162 games, and there are 30 MLB teams. Um, oh, oh, and one other thing, they uh, they found that 55 of the games from 2018 ended on an umpire's incorrect call. So uh, you know, they they play a lot of games, but um, but when it comes to determining who goes to postseason play, really every game does matter. That's got to be really frustrating. I mean, for for fans too. So, what are some specific highlights of the analysis? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so there are three major takeaways I'd say from the analysis. Um, one is that there appears to be a strike zone blind spot. Um, that is, certain regions of the strike zone have a disproportionate number of bad calls. And um, they also found that the less experienced and younger umpires seem to do better than the older and more experienced umpires. Mm. <laughs> and, and also that um, certain situations lead to more incorrect calls. So um, just for example, when the strike count is at two, an umpire calls a ball a strike 29% of the time compared to 15% with a lower strike count. Wow, that's almost twice as likely to make an incorrect call. Uh, yeah, I know. It's crazy. And uh, so, so I've started watching for this during the games now. Uh, whenever there are two strikes, I watch the strike zone closely to see if a ball gets called a strike incorrectly. <laughs> wow. And you mentioned the difference between new and seasoned umpires. Can you tell us something more about this? Yeah, yeah. So actually, this is one of the cases where I would really like to see more analysis carried out. Um, so what they did was compare the bad call ratio between the older experienced umpires and the younger, less experienced umpires. And in terms of the top 10 performers, um, so that those with the, the lowest um, BCR had an average age of 33 and an average level um, or an average of 2.7 years of experience. And their um, average then um, bad call ratio was 8.94%. Mm. Um, so so that was the, those were the top 10 performers. And then compared to the bottom 10 performers, so those with the highest bad call ratio had an average age of 56.1 years, um, an average of 20.6 years of experience, and a bad call ratio average of 13.96%. So there's... You know, definitely a contrast between the the younger, less experienced, and older, more experienced. So, are you convinced by that analysis? <laughs> well, okay. So, the issue here is that they're using the results noted above to try to say something about umpires aging. So, for example, I'm going to give you a few quotes to um, to illustrate what I mean. So they say, this is a quote, based on the research, professional umpires, similar to professional baseball players, have a standard peak, okay, end quote. They, um, they then talk about the physical demands and the required reflexes of being an umpire. And then they write, and this is another quote, at some point, prime is reached and surpassed and the body and statistics do not lie, end quote. Oh my God, you right. can't so, say so, something like that. <laughs> well, so, so they're making these claims. And, and as I, Susan, as I know, you understand, um, it, it, this bothers me because so it, they could be true, right? Like this could actually be what's happening, that umpires peak at a certain age and then get worse. But it just, the current data don't seem to, to um, you, you just can't draw that conclusion from the data. Um, at least not based on what they presented in the article. And the reason is that they're comparing two different generations of umpires. 
We don't actually know if the older, more experienced umpires actually got worse with age. It could have nothing to do with age. It could have to do with initial training or some other factors. Um, so so I, I was a bit skeptical about that conclusion. Yeah, well, I think that sentence right there, just taken out of context, sounds... It just does not sound like a good thing you want to be saying in general (laughs) without extra evidence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, they don't show the performance of individual umpires across years, um, which, so, so more recent years, more technology has become available. So umpires could um, use the current technology, you know, after a game to see how they did, analyze the calls they made, and maybe, maybe they are improving. I, I don't know. They didn't display that sort of result. Um, Also, we don't actually fully know the selection process for the newer generation of umpires. Um, They could be called up from the minor league because their performance-based statistics are superior to their peer umpires in the minor league. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about how they evaluate that in the minor league stadiums, but but yeah, so there's just different selection um, potential biases as well. So, so there's those sorts of you know issues where um, it'd be it'd be nice to see more details, um, maybe more of a, like a longitudinal analysis, I guess. <laughs> uh, but some other things they they might consider with the data um, that might be interesting, and and maybe they did this, but it, you know just wasn't um, put into this particular article. They could look at specific pitcher umpire pairings. Um, do certain umpires favor or disfavor um, certain pitchers? How do the bad calls depend on left-handed versus right-handed pitchers and batters? You know that. That sort of thing could be interesting as well. Now, here's an idea. Can't they review the pitches to correct bad calls? I'm almost getting ahead of myself here, but the world of soccer has recently adopted this thing called VAR, which stands for Video Assistant Referee. And it's been quite a game changer in a lot of recent tournaments. Surprisingly, there's criticism going both ways, though. Some people appreciate having, say, offsides calls be less subject to lapses in attention by the referees, while others say this is dramatically slowing down gameplay. Yeah, this is a great point. And actually, it's one of the punchlines of the article. And so we'll get um, into the author's push for technology-assisted umpiring um, in a moment. But yeah, so currently, reviews for ball and strike calls are not allowed. There are some um, situations on the field where uh, review is allowed, but not for these ball and strike calls. And uh, so um, for years now, there have been people trying to push uh, to get more technology used in, in the ball strike calling. Um, such as using an automatic strike zone, but um, the MLB has really been resisting this. Well, you know, these are these are natural suggestions to make, and and I think the result was with that would be that there's fewer mistakes, and that'll make it less frustrating for fans and players. Yeah, and and that's really what the author is suggesting too. Um, I, I think every game I've watched so far this year has had. Um, some commercial about um, you know how AI or the, the um, their AI stat cast technology is being used to predict things like the chance of a base runner successfully stealing a base, but but there's nothing really um, regarding analyzing the performance of the umpires. And so the article points out that an independent baseball league, it's um, it's known as the Atlantic League, is going to be experimenting this year with an automatic strike zone, um, and this was supported also by the MLB. So perhaps changes are coming. Um, many have been disappointed in how slow these changes have been happening, but um, they're at least moving in what seems to be the right direction. Well, gradual rollout seems to be the safe way to go for any technology, so let's hope it works out.
So while we're on the topic of sports, let's shift gears to soccer, or as the rest of the world calls it, football. Which I suppose makes sense since it's a sport where you kick the ball with your feet. Indeed. And apparently the word soccer, though it's sort of associated with how Americans call the sport, the word itself originated from its homeland of Great Britain as a casual term for association football. And now we're somehow blamed. (laughs) But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What I want to talk about today is this huge soccer competition going on called the Champions League. This year's Champions League is getting into its final games and being married to an avid fan of Liverpool Football Club, one of the semi-finalists looking like it might end a long-standing trophy drought this year, the anxiety levels can be a bit high. That's exciting. So I, I played a lot of soccer growing up, but I've never really followed or watched a professional soccer team. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so let's hope so that... athletic, Jesse. No, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, I just... I have appreciation for soccer, but it never translated to actually uh, watching the professionals. So um, let's... I'll root for Liverpool. Well, like you, I married into it. This is, this is becoming a recurring theme for us when it comes to sports. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. So 538, which gives predictions on all sorts of things you might care about in life, also gives its own predictions on who's going to win the Champions League. And after the conclusion of the quarterfinal games, it is predicting Liverpool to be the most likely winner and uh, it's actually predicted to win. Liverpool is predicted to win the tournament with a 35% chance. Wow. Sounds like you wouldn't, ha- um, you wouldn't have needed to be so nervous about the upcoming games then when you saw this, huh? Well, the second most likely winner, according again to 538.com, is Barcelona, which has had a lot more success in recent years at winning trophies. It's predicted to win with a 34% chance. That's only 1% lower. Uh, I see. Yeah, it's actually, that's very close. <laughs> so you can imagine, I definitely needed to do a little bit of digging to understand 538's prediction methods a little bit better. What kind of statistical methods was it using to arrive at these numbers? I was on a mission to find out. It turns out that the predictions come out of this quantity called the Soccer Power Index, or SPI. Um, In fact, they call it the SPI rating that 538 produces. This is an index that was meant to rate the strength of soccer teams. And um, just historically speaking, Nate Silver, who's the editor-in-chief at 538, has had some experience doing this sort of thing. He was responsible for developing ESPN's very own SPI. Um, And now at 538, this has been improved with additional data. They go all the way back to the late 1800s, and they've also incorporated more granular play-by-play data that's been collected by Opta uh, since 2010. Uh, Yeah, so so once again, we have an example of where the data might have changed with improved technology, you know, measurement devices since the 1800s, we would hope. Um, So we need to ensure that models can, um, can use the different forms of data. Yeah, that's right. So let's start by talking about the ingredients that go into this SPI rating. Uh, Rather than fitting a brand new predictive model to update each team's rating after a game concludes, the SPI gets set to some number for each team at the beginning of a season um, and then sort of gets updated throughout as each game finishes. So basically, the data scientists discovered that the SPI they used to model team strengths wound up correlating very well with the actual market value of teams at the end of the season. So for that reason, they decided to initialize the preseason ratings for every team based on the preseason market values for each player added up, rolled up to the entire team. 
And then as each game gets played, each team's rating just gets adjusted upwards or downwards. Hmm. So this sounds similar to how an ELO rating works in chess. Um, for, for those listeners who are or were chess players, <laughs> uh, winning a game might increase your chess rating, but how much it increases depends on the rating of the opponent you beat. Yeah, this, the soccer ratings here are actually very similar. One slight difference is that based on um, the home and away team soccer ratings, um, there is a probability model for how well each team should have done given the strength of its opponent. And your rating gets adjusted based on how well your performance was relative to that expectation. So yeah, that's actually quite different. Uh, okay. So you could actually win a game and still wind up having your rating adjusted lower. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the surprising part. Rather than just recording a game as a win or loss, which would make it pretty hard to determine whether you exceeded or, or did not exceed the expectations, the model takes into account some more fine-grained information on how many goals were scored. And they concede at 538 that this isn't actually enough because soccer is one of those games where the results are highly unpredictable. There aren't a whole lot of goals. So in terms of predicting sort of how many goals you're going to score, it's like predicting a really rare event. And that's really, really challenging. And then there's some element of luck in terms of refereeing decisions that go your way and sort of like a permeating theme from the first segment of this episode. So really, if we just rely on goals to infer the strength of the team, we can get very noisy results. So is there a clear alternative? So this is where it gets interesting. 538's SPI model also rewards teams for actions that could have resulted in goals, but didn't. So that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like thinking about what's the potential um, of a team to score, regardless of how it turned out. So, for example, one of the ingredients that goes into this team rating is something called shot-based expected goals. This is likely where that Opta data, the play-by-play data, became, became really useful. They uh, look at how many shots each player had, uh, where on the soccer pitch they were taken from, what angle the ball was kicked at, which body part it made contact with, who kicked it. And based on all of these different statistics, it kind of helps to uh, think about what's the value, what's the expected um, number of goals that could have resulted from every action. And it's just really asking, if we were to remove the defending players from the equation, how much potential did every shot have in this game? Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like measuring the individual player's ability to score, which can then be aggregated to the team level. That's right. And then there's something called non-shot expected goals, which reflects extra credit for doing other things that aren't directly related to taking a shot. So for example, passing the ball well is indirectly related to scoring eventually, and making a good pass closer to the opponent's goal gives you a higher chance of scoring eventually. So based on little actions like this, one can also calculate an expected number of goals that result from these non-shot actions. And uh, with, with that, we now have two metrics that are about potential goal scoring. So finally, of course, there are the actual goals that took place during the game. That also factors into this team strength. Um, these are actually somehow adjusted because some goals are more difficult than others to score. So, for example, if a goal is scored when the other team is playing with, say, one less player as a result of a red card, the goal that's scored uh, counts less. And um, when you account for all three of these, which are admittedly just offensive metrics, you can put them in through their statistics model to 
then update their SPI. So are there any um, defensive metrics? Yeah, the defensive metrics recorded for a team are basically the offensive metrics recorded for the opposing team, which I guess kind of makes sense. So each game results in a set of three offensive metrics per team, and these metrics can then be averaged to get an adjusted goal difference, and that's used ultimately to update the SPI rating for each team. So how do these ratings then translate to predicted win probabilities? That's a good question. Um, This is now then getting to the 35% where they got to it. So now that we talk about where these SPI ratings come from, we can think about how they might be used to forecast outcomes of future games. Given two teams' ratings at the start of a game or actually at any time before a game, there's sort of a probability model you can use to predict the chance of each team scoring zero goals, one goal, two goals, and so on. And these are generated independently Um, sort of for each team, I believe, as far as I can tell. And in addition to using the SPI ratings for this, there's also some consideration for which team is playing home uh, because there's always that home field advantage to consider. So after that, we sort of have a joint distribution of the goals that can be scored by each team. And from that, we can figure out the win, draw, or lose probabilities. And it's interesting to note that this method seems to underestimate the probability of a draw. Um, So the 538 team actually makes a post hoc adjustment to increase the probability of a draw and sort of recalibrate the win-lose probabilities afterwards. So now that we have um, predicted outcomes for individual games, I suppose the simulations can be done on all the matchups in the tournament to arrive at kind of the the um, overall tournament win probabilities. Yeah, that's right. So from from the point on of having sort of a single game um, estimated and, and sort of forecasted, we just can think about simulating, say, um, they actually use 20,000 times, 20,000 simulations um, to, to figure out what the outcomes might be for each game based on the winners of those matchups. They can figure out what the next round matchups might look like, propagate that forward, simulate the outcomes of those games, and so on. And so that's how they ultimately figure out, perhaps out of 20,000 simulations, 35% of them have seen Liverpool winning the championship. Ah, okay. Uh, I guess we'll have to see how this all pans out. Um, Is your husband, uh, Shay, delighted by the prediction, though, of 35% for Liverpool winning? He noted that this isn't that far away from what 538 predicted as the probability of Hillary Clinton winning the election in the last presidential election. (laughs) So, nope, the anxiety continues. (laughs) Okay, as of the release of this episode on May 3rd, Liverpool and Barcelona have played the first leg of their semifinals game in the Champions League at Barcelona. So I've invited my husband Shay to join me here in the recording studio. Shay, what was the outcome of that game? Yeah, so while Liverpool played very well, Messi proved to be the difference and led Barcelona to a 3-0 win. If it makes you feel any better, 538's adjusted score differential is just 1.3, which is a lot slimmer than 3. Well, that's unfortunate because I'd rather be 1-0 down than 3. Well, of course, 538 has updated their odds, and in following the game, the win probabilities were revised so that now Barcelona has a 64% chance of winning. They are top, and Liverpool, unfortunately, at the bottom, has only a 4% chance of winning the whole thing. So how do you feel about that? Well, nobody should write off Liverpool because it's not truly over until the second leg's over. And we all know what can happen when we were down 3-0 in Istanbul. We came back, and... This can happen again. So 
let's keep our hopes up high and you'll never walk alone. I hope you're right for my sake and for yours. Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.